Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Heated Conversations podcast. Hit that subscribe button. Also leave comment, share, and we go all the way east. We go to New York with Cornell University. We have head coach Melanie Hall on the podcast to talk about her program, to learn a little bit about her and things that drove her to be able to become the coach that she is today. Um, she's been at Cornell assistant for a quarter century and been the head coach since 2021 of the program. Uh, some an- other interesting things about her we'll discuss, um, including her um, Olympic lifting career, which I'm personally interested in and get to talk about that. Melanie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Um, as we were kind of talking off camera a little bit, how's your preseason going and how's the athletes doing? How are your coaches doing? Preseason has been uh, kind of up and down, but generically, uh, the girls are doing great. I think that um, we're in a really good place heading into season. Um, so I feel like, you know, even though we've had a few challenges early on, everybody's starting to get healthy again. We had a fantastic red versus white meet um, last Friday, uh, which was posted on our Instagram page. So um, I, I think we're overall, you know, all things considered, we're we're looking really good for for where we are in the season. Very good. Now, at the time, at this time, how many um, athletes do you currently have on your roster? We have twenty seven. Um, which I know for a lot of teams is, is kind of um, a large number, uh, especially we only have two coaches. So that makes it a little trickier, but we feel really strongly that depth uh, is incredibly important and having um, a large team is actually makes it much more of a community and um, they're super supportive of each other. So I think that, you know, all things, all things, uh, given all things are equal, we're, we're in a really good place with the number of people we have on our team. Very good. And do you guys have a lot of um, upperclassmen that kind of make that, or are you guys bottom heavy with your freshman and sophomore? Yeah. So we have um, eight seniors, seven juniors, and six freshmen and sophomores. Oh, very cool. So it's six total. Oh, six of each? Six of each. Yep. Okay. Very nice. Very nice. Cool. We're going to yeah. tap back into uh, the gymnastics a little bit. Just kind of want to talk about um, when we kind of start off talking about your team a little bit, just so you, so the people can kind of know your roster size a little bit. Um, let's go back into your own personal gymnastics career. Um, what kind of drove you into the sport of gymnastics and how did it start for you? And then how did it lead to where you are now? Wow. Uh, so I started when I was three Um my parents had me when they were young, they were still in the college setting. Um, they both went to Florida state, which of course does not have a gymnastics team. So that was always a trick as I, as I got older, because, you know, you don't want to go too far away from your roots, but, um, not having a gymnastics team and then thinking about who, who does have a team that's somewhere near you, uh, the, being a gator wasn't an option in my family. So, <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, so I grew up in my early years in Tallahassee. Um, I started out at a gym where actually Ron Gallimore used to be one of the coaches. Um, he was not my coach initially when I was three, but so mommy and me class is kind of like everybody else. And then um, as we moved back down to South Florida, so I was in the Fort Lauderdale area Tim Rand at one point was my coach. Um, he, you know, went on to do American Twisters. And then I was at a gym that is no longer there anymore, but International School of Gymnastics with John and Sue Licurdo. Um, And so um, 
yeah, I, I think as a, as a young kid, just being in an environment where there were a lot of other gyms and gymnasts, um, in my area. And so that kind of fostered that love of gymnastics. Then uh, we moved a little bit um, up to Georgia. I was at a gym where Doug McAvin was my coach. He was uh, one of the former assistants at Georgia. Um, and then I moved further, further north up to Charlotte, North Carolina, where I finished out high school and um, was at a gym there. So a lot of moving around, but exposed to a lot of different types of gyms and um different coaching styles, um, different, um, priorities. So, uh, you know, way back when you got to kind of rewind the tape, there weren't levels, there were classes. And so, you know, moving up through that, um, program through USAG was, um, was really important to me. Yeah. Very good. And did you have a lot of mentors, um, growing up? Like are, were some of those coaches mentors to you in regards to shaping your, mindset and also your um, desire to become a coach if you had those desires at those times? I don't think I really ever thought I would be a coach. I mean, I, I, in high school, I did um, coach, you know, little kid classes. Um, I I was the one teaching the mommy and me classes uh, through high school. Um, I taught some of the lower level kids at my gym, but um, I don't think that's kind of what I thought would be my career path. Um, I was an art major in college and kind of thought that that's where things would take me. Um, But I graduated at a time where jobs were not plentiful and um, I struggled. It was also a time where computers were just starting to be a thing uh, in the art world. So computer graphics happened my second semester of my senior year. And so every job I applied for, they said, go back to school and learn computer graphics. And um, Mm. that wasn't really an option at the time. So I think, you know, yes, those coaches definitely shaped me um, in my coaching role now, but not knowing at the time that that is something that I, that I might want to pursue. Yeah. And how's it being going from Florida and, living now in New York, where I'm sure the weather is different, the cultures are a little different. How was adapting to that? Um, you know, it's interesting, because I, I think about that. I've now, you know, you said I've been at Cornell a long time. Somehow it's been 30 years. I don't know exactly how that happened. But um, <laughs> I've now officially lived here longer than anywhere else uh, that I've been in the past. But I think, you know, as you move further north, Yes, the the culture changes and whatnot, but I feel like it's the people who surround you, yeah, really shape um, who you are as a person. And I think I've always been very fortunate to be surrounded by some really quality people. Yeah. Um, so yes, the climate is different. Um, I still don't like winter. I don't think I'll ever <laughs> love winter. But um, having just quality people in all of the different places that I've lived has really been key uh, to shaping who I am as a person. Yeah. And I've seen that you uh, went to school in Radford. Um, and, and where is Radford located? Radford is in Southwest Virginia. So just kind of over the North Carolina border. It's about two and a half hours from Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, it's about 20 miles from Virginia Tech. So once upon a time, Virginia Tech was like the men's tech college and Radford was the women's teaching college. 
Um, Obviously that has evolved and both of those schools have changed significantly over the years. But um, so Radford at the time, I think I was there, there were maybe 6,000 students um, and it has increased since then. I'm not sure what their enrollment is now, but it's more than that. Um, And when I started there, uh, we had a men's and a women's gymnastics. Sorry. Oh, you're good. For the dog. (laughs) Um, We had a men's and a women's team and they both were um, really active. So yeah, Radford is in uh, the mountains of Virginia and it's beautiful there. So it's funny because it's very similar um, landscape wise to Ithaca. Okay. Very cool. Is And that having that landscape and, and scenery and stuff like that, going from there to where um, I saw that that's where you started your at least collegiate coaching career and then kind of went to Cornell and we'll, we'll talk about that um, transition. Um, did that make the transition to Ithaca a little bit smoother just because you spent your college um, time there? Plus um, you also, you know, coached there for a couple seasons prior to getting the opportunity at Cornell. So I think key to that, that part of the story is that my college coach was Paul Beckwith. Um, and he's the reason I ended up in Ithaca, uh, at Cornell. So, um, when I graduated from Radford in 92, he was there as the head coach of the women's program. And he also kind of oversaw the men's program at the same time. Um, but Radford was in the midst of making some changes with their, he he was also teaching there. So they were making some changes in their um, teaching staff and whatnot. And so um, Paul was looking for, you know, another coaching job and the Cornell job came open. And um, at the time Cornell had dropped the program and it was reinstated and the job came open and Paul became the head coach. And I had been out of school for a couple of years. Like I said, I, I was in Houston for a bit and he called me up and he said, you know, I'm looking for an assistant coach. And we had a long conversation, which finished with, you know, it's in Ithaca, New York and it's cold there. And I said, <laughs> no, I understand. Um, and so he was really the the reason that I came here. I don't think when I, you know, got here in 94 that 30 years later, I would still be here. Um, but the evolution of that has just been so seamless and so enjoyable. And I, you know, just so many people don't love their jobs and I, I truly love this job and and where I am and the community here and the people, the team. So, um, that transition wasn't as hard as I think it could have been. That's good. And what about you? Did he see that he uh, chose you to be the assistant coach or to be able to follow him to uh, Cornell or to Ithaca? Wow. <laughs> I don't know. You might have to ask Paul that question. Um, Cause I think at 24, I don't think anybody thinks that they're all that in a bag of chips <laughs> as yeah. an assistant coach. Um, yeah. You know, while I was at Radford, um, I had done, you know, some coaching with the team there. I had had an injury my freshman year. I I fractured my back. And so I was out for a little bit. Um, And so I kind of was working with people on floor and on beam. Um, I'm definitely not the world's best choreographer, but I, you know, I, I helped out with that. And, you know, as, as you start working on things, you start to learn more about the things that you do and you don't like. And, um, 
I had some background in spotting, you know, from doing that in high school. Um, and so, you know, I think he was looking for somebody to help him with a program that had been struggling. And so we were kind of starting, I don't want to say at the bottom, because I don't, I don't want to take anything away from the girls who were on the team at that point in time. But, um, you know, after having dropped a program and it being gone for a while, the people who are on the team were mostly high school level gymnasts. Some were, had been, you know, level tens, but for the most part, um, our team was a, a big mix of, of talent. And, um, I, I hope that he brought me in to hopefully start the program here and just move, move it up. Yeah. So maybe I was just eager to get back into coaching. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. Cause I think that's, it speaks volumes, obviously that, um, especially a coach that you're under, um, to want to have you be part of their, especially when they move somewhere else and, you know, reinstating a, a program and, you know, trying to rebuild and having the right personnel and right people around. And obviously, you know, you stay there for a long time. So it's, it was the right decision by him to make, um, to be able to do that. Um, so, and I like to tap into those things too. I think the character part of people are important, um, especially when it comes to like head coaches and personnel, because no matter where you go, um, if the people that you're around, like you had mentioned earlier, community is good. If the people you're around don't make sense for you, then it's, it really um, dictates the, pers the, the experience that you're going to have. Right. And yeah, so, absolutely. so it's cool to know that he's seen character in you and it's obviously paid off for, you know, 30, 30 years. So, uh, so yeah. far. Um, can you talk about your role as an assistant coach? Cause I know you're an assistant coach, um, uh, for, you know, majority of the time that you're there and then, um, you became the associate head coach and then now the, um, the head coach, can you talk about all three phases and kind of what your roles were and then, um, how it came about to move up to each level? Sure. So uh, coming in, uh, again, because the program was kind of just getting reinstated and we were kind of starting from ground zero, also going to a new school, even though Paul had obviously had coaching experience and whatnot, each school is very unique um, in what is required. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges here at Cornell and at, you know, at, at most schools, but specifically here is, is the challenge of the education piece. And so coming into a team that needs a lot of attention in the gym, but also needs a lot of attention in the academic side of things. Um, so figuring out, you know, sitting down with Paul and figuring out what does that look like from a coaching standpoint? How do we navigate that? So I think early on, um, because we were both new at the same time, um, we were learning together. And I think one of Paul's greatest assets is that he was a teacher in all aspects of everything. So it wasn't just, um, you're an assistant, here are your things that you're going to be doing, and I'll be over here as the head coach doing all of these things. We very much collaborated on pretty much every aspect of the team and how to navigate it. And I think um, that made future transitions a lot easier. Um, so early on, you know, mostly focusing on beam and floor for me. My favorite event is bars. Um, but at five, two, 
bars is harder to spot than for him <laughs> who's 6'2", a uh, little bit easier, you know, reach up to the high bar and whatnot. So, yeah. um, so, you know, we had definite roles in the gym, but we were always, you know, there was always a crossover and yeah. he never was like, well, I'm only the one who will spot these things and you will only do these things. If somebody, you know, wanted him to come over and spot something on beam, but somebody wanted me to go stand over at vault, um, that was always a possibility you know, budgeting stuff, um, recruiting, everything was a collaborative effort. And so, you know, after years um, of being the assistant coach and he felt that, you know, it was time to move me up to associate head coach. And I think too, that was a kind of a new thing that wasn't, um, at least at Cornell, it wasn't something like, oh, you have a head coach and you have an associate head coach. But I think after all the years I had been there, um, he put in, you know, to, to increase my title to that. And I think that, um, it didn't really change our dynamic, you know, personally or, or as colleagues, but it was more of a, a nod to the fact that I had been around for, for as long as I had, and had been really, you know, dedicated to the program. Yeah, no, so. I love that. No, very good. Yep. And I know you had mentioned you love bars. I, and I see that um, you were quite the bar worker at Radford and you had held the record and, um, until the, <laughs> yeah. Um, and what were, what were some of the skills that you were, that you like doing and what are some of the skills now do you enjoy, um, kind of either seeing on bars or you kind of have, um, respect for just because of the level of difficulty or just even the elegance of that skill? Sure. Um, so, you know, obviously you got to rewind that tape again, go back to the seventies and eighties when the bars were really close together. And, um, I distinctly remember, you know, heck dismounts off the low bar, hated, just wrecked the whole front of your legs, wrapping around the bar that never great. I loved when we started like moving the bars farther apart and I learned giants and, um, but straddle backhand was probably one of my, it was the most fun skill for me. Um, yeah. it wasn't the hardest skill, but it was, it was definitely a lot of fun. I did a, um, I'm sure it has a name an in bar Jaeger. So with a, a forward grip, like you're going to do a straddle back, but you hold on, you know, I can't even think of the name of it now, but anyway, um, yeah. that was in my routine. And then once the bars were further apart. I did a double flyaway as my dismount, but um, I loved working Komen each dismounts. I worked Komen each fulls for a while. Mm -hmm. uh, I never got to compete them, um, but they were super fun to to play around with. Um, and then Schluterns. I don't know if you even know what that is, but it's like a basket, and then you okay. go to a handstand on the low bar. Okay. Um, work those for a while. Uh, and then, you know, it's funny to think about some of the things that people used to do bar for mounts off a low bar, a half turn to handstand off a board, like jump half turn to handstand. Yep. A lot of people used to do those. So work those for a bit. Um, yeah, I just like to play on bars. It was just fun. Yeah. So, I think now probably um, one of my favorite skills is a horkina. I just, they're so beautiful when they're done well. Um, yeah. I mean, there's so many skills out there. It's hard to pick one, but I we've had a couple kids do a horkina and they're just beautiful. Yeah. Anyway. No, that's no. 
I'm with you on that. I let, I enjoy bars, you know, I'm fortunate to be able to, um, you know, coach bars myself where I'm at, um, and have been for a little bit. Um, but it's obviously one of those skills that, you know, takes a lot of, um, technical, um, you know, prowess and also the right type of strength, but, um, just, the elegance of, you know, flying through the air, right. Flying, especially with the bars um, now wider and just seeing, you know, the athletes and what they can do, the combinations that are being done. Um, and, you know, with ease where, you know, I just run across the floor right now and I feel tired where these yeah. kids are just swinging and swinging and connecting and yep. connecting. And, you know, it's, it's really cool to see. And it's really cool to see how, the sport has evolved and, you know, in your time of coaching, I'm sure you've seen it evolve to, lot, yeah. you know, exponentially, which is very cool. Yeah. Um, and let's tap into you a little bit and we'll come back to talking about the, the, um, the program. Um, I seen that you started Olympic weightlifting. How did you yeah. get into that? And, um, oh. are you still kind of, um, actively doing it? I do not actively do Olympic weightlifting anymore. Um, it it was a lot of fun, uh, a lot of work. Um, I started it. Uh, my ex husband was an Olympic weightlifter, um, and so we would, you know, lift together, um, go to competitions together, whatnot. Um, and there's a lot of correlation, especially with the snatch which yeah. is one of the lifts that you do, um, with bars. So I think for me, that was the easier of the two lifts. Um, and then, you know, the clean and jerk, the jerk part, if I could, if I could clean it, if I could get it off the ground and get it to my chest, the, the jerk part was easy. Um, but there's just something about the clean. It's just always like getting under that bar and oh, especially yes. as it got heavier. Um, but there is, there's a lot of correlation technique wise, um, with Olympic lifting and gymnastics. So I think it kind of came easy to me, um, initially clearly I had to work on the strength part. It took a while. Um, but yeah, it was, it was fun while I was doing it. Then a couple kids later and a whole lot more, you know, time at work and whatnot just takes away from that training time. So, yeah, no, I understand it. I, I had an opportunity. I, I was a assistant coach at Utah state. Um, I got there, uh, in September of 2016. And, um, the program was big into the Olympic lifts. And so, um, the strength and conditioning coach, his name was Brandon Howard is Brandon Howard. Um, he's no longer there. He's now at, I think Texas tech, I believe, or okay. NC state. I think he's at NC state. Um, and, um, he kind of introduced me to it. And then the next season I was at the university of Wisconsin whitewater and they had a club. And so whenever, um, I wasn't working or coaching and I had opportunity to, I started, um, Olympic lifting and, you know, really I started competing and stuff like that, but, um, it is quite technical and I wasn't, I wasn't a gymnast, so I can't necessarily compare actively doing it, but I can sure. see the correlations yep. and, you know, those crashes on the, on the bars, you know, when it comes to, if you, um, dip too fast and the bars, you know, cause you, you know, it's heavy and you yep. anticipate that you have to drop really fast and the bars higher than you are, you know, those clean, clean, um, crashes don't feel good, especially those snatch ones. Right. They, yes. 
and you lose it behind you and your shoulder starts screaming at you. And yeah. Yep. No, but I think it's great. Just like, like you said, I think if it was understood in the gymnastics world and how to teach it, it has a lot of cor- correlations and it, I think it will help with a lot of the shoulder strength and also um, the development of the legs for their power development on. I think on what's hard. Floor. I think what's hard with that is it, it is so technical and it does take a lot of time. And I think the one thing with college athletes, you know, and, and obviously it depends what school you're at and whether you have, you know, a strength coach who's good enough to be able to teach it. We do have that, but it, because it takes so long, we don't do a lot of, um, Olympic lifting, and it has nothing to do with whether they're capable. We've had uh, several gymnasts who've graduated and gone on, and they're still competing Olympic lifting. Oh, wow. um, but it, it's just so technical. And so we just don't have the luxury of time to really teach the lifts properly. And yeah. because I because I did Olympic lifting, I would never let my team do it unless it was done properly, because yeah. that's how you get injured. Yeah. And, you know, lifting is supposed to enhance your gymnastics. And if you don't lift properly, it can just really hurt your gymnastics. Yeah. Uh, so we have a fantastic strength coach. Um, she's super open to trying lots of different things and we, we change it up. Um, she's super excited about our team. You know, I mean, I think generically gymnast strength to weight ratio is so much greater than most other, um, athletes. And so she's always excited about, let's try this, let's do this. So she's been um, an amazing addition. She's been with us for 10 years, I think now. Um, And she's fantastic. So I think, you know, we're really lucky. And I I do think it really improves their gymnastics. Yeah, I agree. I agree a hundred percent. And I think some of the auxiliary lifts that you do, not necessarily auxiliary lifts, but exercises that you do like your, um, I call them the I, T's, Y's, and then W's, kind of where you're doing the raises that really work the backside of the shoulder, which I th- uh, a lot of times in the, the delts and, and the lats where I think that's where gymnasts struggle a lot of times, right? Um, and to be quite honest, in gymnastics, a lot of things that we do and we train are more um, kind of front side where we're causing flexion more than really... Um, 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 hyperflexion, right. Or overextension. Well, we do overextension, but really a lot of stuff on, on bar seems, yeah. (laughs) but not necessarily for the shoulders, right. Where a lot of that stuff prepares your shoulders on the backside to kind of be healthy for those ranges, especially with the releases that you're going to do nowadays. If you're throwing those big releases, you know, um, your low to highs, your Takachos, your single releases, the shoulders need to be able to be healthy back there. And not only the flexibility, which sometimes gymnast has, but the strength back there to be able to maintain, um, which, you know, I personally start to introduce some of those things to my, my own club gymnast, um, you know, and I've seen a benefit, you know, and seen longevity and more stability in their, in their shoulders overall, and then they can control it. They know how to get in an overextended position and pull it back because they have the muscles that can do it where, you know, sometimes if you lose it overextended, you're done for, right. You come off the shoulder out. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's one thing that, um, I'm sure, you know, Dave Tilly, right. I think he's been so instrumental in getting club gyms to start thinking about lifting, not that they all have the ability to do it or, 
or choose to do it, but just even having that thought that, oh, wow, you know, yes, gymnastics conditioning is great, but what more can we do so that these kids, when they get to these high level skills are strong enough to handle the repetitions, handle the, you know, the strength required to get through some of these. So, um, yeah, I think it's awesome. And I love that, you know, we've really moved towards the weightlifting and embracing that as part of gymnastics overall. Yeah. And one piece that I think is really important and that I'm working on trying to hopefully educate the community on is the application of force and technical, um, mechanics to sprinting on vault because i think i'm a huge believer that you know the part that takes the most time on vault which is the run is really the reason why your vault is going to do what it does because i think we do train the technical side a lot right of the entry and stuff like that but if you can't create enough power to get your vault to turn over or, or flip or have a block or anything like that then you know you're really doing all the hard work on the side that should be the easiest, right? The hard work should be building all the power and and, and the speed. And then the easiest part should be hitting that board table and flying in the air and then, you know, the landings. And so kind of teaching that, which I think is important with um, Olympic lifting, because you have to really learn how to drive through the ground to get that weight up. It's not about jumping and throwing it. You're, you're driving down to pull that thing up and then you get under it. Right. And so, yeah. And then being able to settle in once it's over your head. Right. And, and I think that also goes back to like, Gymnasts are super strong and don't use their cores properly. So I think that's a whole nother topic, you know, where Olympic lifting, you have to engage that core at all times because you get that weight overhead. I don't care how strong you are. Your shoulders can't just be all the support that you have. It has to be all the way down from, you know, from your, your neck all the way down through your toes. Um, And so I do, you know, I do think that working core in those lifts is imperative. Yep. And I agree. I agree. Well, that's kind of cool to talk about because not, not many times, you know, are able to really talk, talk about those things and really have the understanding. Um, but I hope that um, the education of that kind of starts, you know, being dispersed to more people and more coaches and stuff like that. And really, truly understanding to, because again, these athletes are capable and we can see it in how they do their skills and, you know, they're capable of learning some of these things and, in club where they're going to be there for a while. It's um, good to, you know, introduce some of those things. What are some other passions that you have um, that you like to do outside of coaching? You know um, what makes you, you, and what gives you a break from, you know, the job that you do? I, I think top of my list is spending time with friends. Um, Just, you know, breaking off from work, Um, and, and as much as I love my job and I do spend an enormous amount of time, you know, in, in doing what I do, but, um, spending time with friends, uh, I love to travel, um, yoga. So, um, that's been kind of gotten, been put on the back burner lately, which is really, you know, tough when that happens. Um, but yeah, I think, um, traveling is, is probably one of my top things that I just absolutely love. Um, prior to coming to Cornell, when I couldn't find a job right out of college, I was a flight attendant. So okay. little known fact that is now 
obviously going to be a little more known fact. Um, <laughs> but it was really interesting going to new places, seeing, you know, meeting new people. Um, yeah. And so I think, you know, when I retire, I will probably spend a whole lot more time traveling. As a kid, um, you know, a lot of people didn't fly, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, just whenever they felt like going somewhere. So I spent a lot of time in the car um, with my parents, put, putting miles on the car. You know, living in Florida, we would drive up to Lake Winnipesaukee up in New Hampshire. Um, we had family up there. Um, we did, we drove out to the Grand Canyon, um, did a lot of camping, a lot of hiking. So um, that's, that is definitely coming back into my future. I can see it as soon as I retire and I have more time to do those kinds of things. Yeah, I love it. Off the top of your head, where is one place that you'd want to go once you retire? New Zealand. New Zealand. And why I've New had, Zealand? Uh, I don't know. I it just, it's someplace I've always wanted to go. Um, I had an amazing opportunity to go to Tahiti and Bora Bora um, with a bunch of friends. And um, that was amazing. I'd love to go back to Greece. I went there when I was 13 and um, feel like I need to do it as an adult. Yeah. Um, I actually spent a little bit of time in Romania at that same time. Um, very interesting, I think, as a 13-year-old to see the countryside where they still had outhouses and, um, you know, hand pumps for water. Um, so I, I think, you know, you get comfortable in the space that you're in. Um, yeah. And and really moving outside of that, I think, is, is just key to um, becoming a better person, which should be, to me, a lifelong goal for everyone to just make yourself a little bit better every single day. So um, I think, you know, just ex expanding your knowledge of other people and other cultures and other places um, is just so important. I agree. I agree. And which kind of segues into, um, I also noticed that you're part of, you know, um, boards and stuff, at least with the community of, you know, gymnastics, um, and being able to have that type of impact and kind of, you know, sit on, uh, on those boards or be directors or some of those things, kind of what was your passion or vision or purpose in being on those? And kind of what do you want to see, you know, happen with the sport of gymnastics, um, as you sit, you know, or, or sat in those roles or, and still do? Um, I think, you know, the more you know, the more you know, and the more you can potentially help change the course of whatever, you know, committee or um, organization that you sit on. Um, and you may not be the loudest voice in the room, but sometimes having a quiet voice and being persistent um, is important. Um, I think that, you know, committee-wise, in the past, I've I've been on committees that I felt you know where maybe I could do some some good quality work, um, and and work in hand in hand with some other coaches that I really respect, and think have great ideas and you know helping to whether it's my idea their idea whether you know we we collaborate to you know move those forward. Um, I think the the NCAA landscape is constantly changing. Um, I think in three to five years, it's not going to look at all like what it is right now. Um, what will it look like? I don't even know, but I know that it's going to change significantly. And so, you know, being a part of that, I think is important because I think all voices and all sides need to be heard. I think, you know, 
we hear a lot about the Power Five conferences, the schools with, you know, who are always on TV, and not just in the gymnastics world, but I think just in general. Um, yeah. You know, the sports where the kids are getting all the NIL money, where um, it, it just the loudest voices, right, in the room. And I think what the voices that need to also be there, even if they're quiet voices, are the voices of the the kids who are going to school because they want to get a great education and they love gymnastics and they're doing. It. And I think that's one of the reasons I've stayed at Cornell is, you know, every single person on my team could walk out the door tomorrow and not do gymnastics anymore, but not have to leave Cornell. Mm-hmm. We don't offer scholarships. So, um, you know, they're here because they love the sport and because they want to be here. And I think fostering that, um, fostering that, that feeling of being there because you just love it and not feeling the need to stay. So I think, you know, the voices of those coaches also need to be heard and making sure that, you know, there are going to always be opportunities for people who want to do it just for the love of it. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with scholarships. I was on a scholarship and that's, that's amazing. And for a lot of kids, that's how they can, you know, get to college. Um, But just creating a, you know, a space where they feel safe to pursue their dreams academically, but also gymnastically. Yeah. Um, So again, you know, sitting on these, I don't do it because I want to boost my resume. I'm not going anywhere unless Cornell decides <laughs> they want to hire the fire me or something. But, um, yeah. but I think I, I do it so that I, I do know what's going on and I do have a voice when I need to. Yeah, no, I think it's, I think it's wonderful, especially like you said, representing those who may not always get represented. Um, and, you know, being the, the voice, you know, that, for them, you know, because again, every person, every human being is valuable. And sometimes, as you said, you know, there's more attention because resources are, um, they have more access to resources at certain universities, which is the reality of what it is, right? And sometimes with that, you get, you know, more of the say, or you get more of the opportunities, more of the platforms to be able to kind of say how you feel or get, you know, to move the, the move the needle forward. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, which, um, I believe, like you said, I think, um, you know, having those persistent voices who are going to help see changes. Cause again, not everybody is going to have the opportunities to be at some of those places and with scholarships, especially, and, you know, roster limitations, not everybody is going to be capable, which in the sport of gymnastics now, right. Um, you kind of mentioned it's evolving. Um, the division three programs are competing for some of the same kids that would go to division one programs as walk-ons or even get scholarships, you know, because there's so many athletes that are doing a great job. And so many coaches are doing a wonderful job, you know, developing these athletes and um, getting their skill level up, which there's not going to be a home for everyone to go division one, division two, but you know, you get to go. I think, you know, the difference between division one and division three, that gap has been closing like exponentially. I think, you know, what used to be the athlete at a division three might be a level eight. Um, and, and now the vast majority of those kids are level tens. And the difference between, you know, a full scholarship program and a division three school is just depth. How many kids 
you know, can score a, a 985 or better. And what used to be maybe a division three school had one kid. They now have two or three or four kids, maybe more on certain events, you know, and I think it's the beauty of gymnastics. It's also the beast of gymnastics, right? Yeah. So, it's, you know, um, but I think it's, it's fantastic. I also think, you know, kids choose a university because it speaks to them in some way. Yeah. Um, and it may be that it's a huge school with a big football program, or maybe it's a small school with no football program, which for me, kind of going back to, you know, my parents were Florida State grads. Um, I went to a school that had no football team, so I didn't have to pick sides. Yeah. Um, so I, I think, you know, you pick a school for a reason, whether it's the the campus or the coach or a combination of things. Um, they have the major that you're looking for or whatever, but it, it's so incredibly important to find that school that really you feel you will be home. You will feel like it's home for four years because, you know, and I say this all the time and I'm sure my whole team would just roll their eyes, but like you have four years, this is it, right? You worked so hard to get to this point. Um, your last four years should be your best four years. They should be fun. They should be exciting. You should still be learning new things. Um, but while you're doing all of that, you should be at a place where you feel comfortable and, and outside of the gym, because that yeah. is a large part of, you know, why you're at college. A hundred percent. And what about Ithaca? And for those who don't know where it is, can you kind of talk about where you guys are located and then segue sure. into the question about what about Ithaca makes it so special? Or, yeah, uh, and Cornell. Interesting. Yeah, Cornell, Cornell and Ithaca are interesting places. So the the slogan is, you know, Ithaca is 10 square miles surrounded by reality. So there's always that joke. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> um, you know, Ithaca is located in upstate New York. So kind of central New York. We're about 50 miles from Syracuse, southwest of Syracuse. Um, we're only about four, a little over four hours from New York City. I think everybody thinks of New York and they automatically are like, oh, the city. Um, yep. <laughs> we're about four-ish hours from the city. Um, it is surrounded, Cornell itself is surrounded by farms and rolling hills and lakes. We're right in the heart of the Finger Lakes region. Um, and so uh, everything here is is absolutely beautiful. And they say it's gorgeous because there's about a hundred waterfalls and gorges within a 10 mile radius of campus. Oh, wow. Um, so it's definitely not in a city. Um, but if you need city feel, you can hop on the campus to campus bus and get to New York city. And like I said, about four hours, give or take traffic. Yeah. Uh, the campus itself is very large. Um, it was originally, it was started in 1865, but it was the first land grant institution in New York state. And so I think that, um, you know, it is one of the Ivy schools, but it is the largest of the Ivies. Um, we've got about, I think we're up to something like 16,000 undergrads, um, but a total population of about 26,000. So, I mean, it's a fairly large university. Um, and I think, you know, it, it's, like I said, it's the biggest of the Ivies uh, population-wise and maybe even land-wise. We, we have the vet school, and the business school and the law school also on campus, medical school and tech campus are in New York City. But campus itself has botanic gardens and farms and um, 
a lot, we do a lot of crop management. So because it was a land grant institution, um, half of Cornell is state and half of it is private. Okay. So if you're a New York state resident, there are a couple of different colleges you can apply to at Cornell that are state universities. Oh, wow. Uh, which I think a lot of people don't know because all of the, all of the other Ivies are just fully private. Um, okay. So, yeah. So, you know, a couple little nuggets that are, you know, just different, even though we're yeah. part of the Ivy League. That's cool. Yeah. I've never really heard of a, a, a college being split like that. Yep. Um, which ones, you know, are more um, public and which ones are more private? So we now have eight undergraduate colleges um, and, and unlike some schools, you apply to one of the colleges at Cornell. Um, but the, the state ones are the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences, the College of Industrial and Labor Relations, and the College of Human Ecology. So those three are the main ones that are um, part of the state system. Okay. Yeah. So how does that... Is, are they all on that campus? Yep. And, yep. Uh, okay. If you walked around, you wouldn't necessarily notice that there was like some delineation between them other than once you're here, if you're an engineer, all of the engineering buildings are on this section of campus. And if you're in the College of Industrial and Labor Relations, they're in this part of campus. So the campus is sectioned off in that way. But if you're just walking around, you wouldn't know that. Yeah. And now... How does it change tuition for um, students or student athletes when they come in? If they go to one of the ones that are state, a state school or state program, and then versus one that's a, a private, you know, school within the Cornell, um, right? Um, you know, yeah. So if you're a if a, if you're a New York State resident and you apply to one of the state colleges, you would get in-state tuition. Okay. But if you're an in-state student and you apply to one of the non-state colleges, you would not get in-state tuition. Okay. It was it's part of the private part of, of Cornell. Okay. And can, so if I was a in-state and I go into the private, I get in-state as well there or just as if I came from anywhere? Yeah, no, I think it's just you get in-state tuition if you go to one of the state colleges. Oh, okay. Sounds good. How about someone who's from outside and they go to, they're still out of state? Correct. Okay. So um, Cornell tuition is Cornell tuition unless you're an in-state student at okay. one of those colleges. Yeah. All right. Cool. Sounds good. And, and then I, you know, I think tuition-wise, um, all of the IVs have need-based financial aid. So I think, you know, there's this misconception that we offer scholarships, but it's just based on your family income. And so okay. they do offer grant money. All of the IVs offer grant money, um, depending obviously on your family uh, income. Okay. That's good to know. Very good to know. So a lot of the athletes that you guys have, you know, when they go there, um, their, you know, passion really is for, you know, the, the school and the university and this, because I know a lot of times if you're really thinking, which is hard as, as athletes, sometimes when you're going to pursue the next level of, um, of sport, sometimes our, our priorities kind of get, um, shifted or kind of get, we kind of get distracted because we think it's about the process of getting to that athletic program. 
rather than the process of, okay, this is where I'm going to get my education. This is where I'm going to be living. This is the community I'm going to be with. And, you know, sometimes make a decision that's not ideal for us just because we're like, I'm so excited because, you know, like say Florida state, for example, Hey, I I got an opportunity to go to Florida state. Florida state is such a big school. It's well-known this and that I want to be a Seminole. And then you get there and you're like, okay, maybe this is not where, you know, because, um, you know, and being able to make the, the decisions based off of the complete, um, experience that you're going to have academically is it you know do i want a big campus feel do i want big classes or do i want smaller classes you know are my professors going to be more um interactive or are all my classes going to be on campus or can i do some online is there the variety what do they have to offer for um international um study abroad stuff and stuff like that you know which i think it's super important um to consider. And then, you know, finally the financial piece, right. Um, which I'm glad that you touched on, um, the way that you're kind of, you can get some money and, and, and stuff like that. So then people can kind of know, you know, what steps to initiate. Cause again, if you come from a place where, uh, you know, family-based need is something that you could qualify for, you know, it shouldn't limit your opportunity to go and say, Hey, I want to go to an Ivy league and stuff like that, you know? Um, but also knowing that it may not always just be about academics only, you know, which I think it's important and not, not saying, not saying that it isn't important, but, um, you know, um, kind of knowing what you're getting into before you kind of get into it. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, when we're looking at recruits, for, for us, um, we have a very limited recruiting budget, which is fine. And, and we work well within, you know, what we do have, but I think even if, I don't want to say we had an unlimited budget, but even if we had a larger budget, I'm not sure how much I would, um, get excited. I know so many coaches go to gyms and they watch and they go to people's houses and all of that. I think the, the best part for us is to bring them here to campus because it is such a different campus than many others. Um, have them meet the team because again, you're going to be spending a lot of time with all of these people and you want to enjoy the people that you're going to be spending the bulk of your time with. So right. bringing them to campus, walking them around, you know, having them go to a class, um, you know, watch practice, meet me and my assistant, um, you know, meet some of our faculty that are here, talk to our team faculty advisor. So I think, you know, for us, the the best place is to have them here. Yeah. To show them what Cornell has to offer. I can talk a blue streak if I'm sitting in your living room, Yeah. how great Cornell is, but maybe you're from a small area or a rural area and you're like, oh, I love Cornell. And you get to Cornell and you're like, this is another rural area. I want to go to school in a city. Yeah. I don't want to sell Cornell on something that it isn't. Yeah. Right? Or vice versa. A kid lives in a city and is like, I'm sick of the city. I want to go somewhere that's not that. Right. Yeah. But I think until you actually walk, you know, step foot on a campus, you don't really know what that feels like or how you feel in that space. And I think it's it's key to have kids come to your campus and see what it's all about not put on any special pretenses, not, you know, any of that 
Um, but just this is this is what it is. Yeah. Um, and we love it here for you know all of these different reasons. But then you as an athlete, if you're coming here, are you gonna love it? Yeah. And what does that look like for you? Agreed. Agreed. No, and I think that's really important. Like like you said, uh, even with this, what I'm doing. You know, we're just having the conversation about it and kind of giving some initial steps, right? Because for the most part, you don't go and it's not similar to like a store, right? Um, where you can just go into a store and be like, hey, I see this product and I want to buy it because I can see it right away. Where, you know, it's like a commercial. You get to hear about it first, which what we're doing is we're, you know, kind of talking about it first. But I also want to, you know, come on campus and do these things live on different campuses. And so people have a sense of what it may look like. So they can put themselves there and then it could entice them to go and do it themselves and be like, okay, I have an idea of what it may already be like. So I want to go and understand that for myself, right? I can envision it in my head. And now I can really be like, you know what, what I envisioned is what I really feel once I get here. Um, yep. And so super excited about, you know, obviously this time and process and stuff like that. And I want to kind of get into now talking about the gymnastics itself. So you mentioned you have another coach. So who's your other coach and what is your roles on the pro uh, in the program? Do um, some of you do one of you coach two events? Um, do you guys kind of share all the events and then is recruiting kind of a split duty or does one kind of handle more of the recruiting than the other? Sure. Um, there's two of us. So myself and then Mike Brackman. Um, he was a gymnast um, in Chicago and uh, did college gymnastics there as well. Um and then he was at a gym in Chicago um, before he came to Cornell. So this is his third year. Um, that I think for me was uh, a really hard transition. Paul retired. And so I moved into the head coaching role. Um, and after working with the same person for 27 years, um, it's a little daunting to be like, okay, I'm going to bring a new person in. And what is that going to look like? But yeah. Mike has been absolutely amazing. I think that... Um, He's got great technical knowledge um, as a coach. We mostly split the, you know, the events. So um, he kind of stations himself on the bar end of the gym. Uh, again, he's, even though he's a gymnast, he's 6'2". So just like Paul, tall guy, a yeah. uh, little easier to reach up to that high bar and whatnot. Yeah. Um, and I station myself on the beam end of things. Um and then it just depends on each kid. You know, some kids only want him to spot. Some kids only want me to spot. Um, but we try and share as many of those duties as we can. Um, and then, you know, we have a, a pit. It's an above ground pit, but it's all the, all four events go into it because um, we're on the second floor of our building. But, um, you know, from up there, you can kind of get a feeling of of all the things that are happening. So with 27 on the team, it can be tricky um, to have eyes on everybody, but we're fortunate we have cameras where we can do instant replay. And, you know, so if we didn't happen to see it, we'll go over and, you know, watch the video with somebody if they want us to look at something that we didn't get to see on, you know, the first go round. Um, we have great, you know, setup in our gym. So I feel like, you know, whether one of us is actually at an event or not, the girls have the opportunity to do things that are safe in a pit um, if needed, a loose foam pit if needed. So um, as far as recruiting goes, he loves recruiting. 
which is awesome. Um, I love meeting new people. It kind of goes back to just, you know, always interesting to meet new people, see where they're from and whatnot. But the actual act of recruiting um, is probably, I don't want to say it's the least favorite part of my job because really paperwork and all that is my least favorite part. But the recruiting, there's just so many kids and so many kids that I really like. Like you get to know these kids and and you're just, you're in awe, right? Because they're just awesome. Some of the things outside of the gym that they're doing, some of the things, you know, obviously within the gym that they're doing, but they're just good people. Right. And that's one of the things, you know, I, I would say that's top of our list is we want to recruit really good people. Yeah. It could be an amazing gymnast. And if you're not really a, a nice person, um, I'm not sure that, you know, we would really want to have you on our team, but he loves like the, the nitty gritty details. Like mm. he'll watch a kid once and then we'll be talking about recruits and he'll be like, oh yeah, she does a uh, this, this, and this. I'm like, how do you remember these things? She just has this like, <laughs> knack for like remembering what, what people do. And I think it's awesome. Yeah. Um, me, I'll go back and watch the film, you know, how however many times I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Um, so we play off each other really well um, in that respect. But, you know, recruiting wise, we try to split it up. I think it goes back to kind of how Paul and I used to divvy things up. And I feel it's really important, you know, and Mike and I talk about this a lot, like what if, I mean, I don't want this to happen, but what if I was in a car accident tomorrow and I couldn't mm. be in the gym? What does he need to know? What things that I would normally handle? If he doesn't know about them, he can't handle them. So I feel like it's really important. Yes. He's an assistant coach. Yes. He's only been here for three years, but the more he knows the better he can serve our team, regardless yeah. of whether I am there or not. What if I had a family emergency? What if, or vice versa, right? Like, I feel like our roles need to be very intertwined, yeah. but also it could be very separate if they have to be. Yeah. No, I think that's good. I think that's really good how you mentioned that, because I think sometimes we kind of get isolated in our positions and our roles and we, you know, try to get really good at that. But as you said, knowing what, um, your other person is doing um you know in other sports that are like more team sports sometimes you can kind of learn that concept um, because it helps what you do and helps the flow of things right um but in gymnastics since a lot of times it's more individual and really what you do doesn't necessarily have to impact somebody else um it does in regards to fears right because a lot of times it seems like fears are contagious but yeah. When it comes to like directly the way I do my bar routine doesn't have to affect the way you do your bar routine, right? Or it's going to mess you up, right? Um, But in what you're saying, sharing roles, and if something happens, or if someone needs to, um, you know, they're just sick one day, or again, they're out recruiting, or, you know, just come in and, you know, take care of things, but also passing the torch, you know, there's going to be a day where you want to travel and retire and, you know, and say that he wants to stay in it and he gets the opportunity to, um, it just helps make that process so much smoother. And I think, you know, if you're not learning from other people, you're just stagnant. And that, Mm. and that to me is, is not okay. And I think Mike has a lot of, um, really good ideas and really, good insight to impart. And if I'm not learning from him and he's not learning from me, then I think, you know, our team can't grow. Mm. So I think it's important that we both are bringing new things to the table and that we're listening and, you know, being active in, you know, collaborating on a regular basis. 
Yeah. And do you guys do that with your team? Like, do you guys have um, captains or do you guys have a leadership committee? And when you have your captains, are they captains that are mostly upperclassmen or is it where the coaches vote on them or the athletes vote on them? Kind of what is that process? So I think we like to give our team a lot of um, autonomy. I think that, you know, it's their, it's our experience, but it's their experience. Right. And we're just guiding them. Yeah. to where they want to get to. Um, we have three team captains and we have one senior and two juniors and the, the team votes on them. Um, so at the end of this year, they'll vote on team captains for next year. Um, there are three very different personalities. And I think it's actually great because um, what, you know, one's strengths are maybe the weakness for somebody else. And so yeah. they play off each other really well. Um, and and I think they each bring something very unique to the table. And so I feel like, you know, with a large program um, and a lot of people on the team, I think it's really important to have many voices, not too many, but many voices to be the leaders um, yeah. and, and to kind of impart what the team sentiment is. Um, and having just one captain, I think is really difficult to do that yeah. with a large team. So they're fantastic. Um, you know, our doors are always open. I think that's the one thing we, we really work on, um, making sure it's open communication. If we feel like that's shutting down, we'll sit down with the whole team and have a, you know, have a talk about, you know, remember if something comes up, if you have an issue and you need help, there's two coaches and three captains and then everybody else. And if you don't feel comfortable bringing it to one of your coaches or one of your captains, somebody else will feel comfortable. So talk to them and then they can move forward. I think, you know, the open communication thing is just absolutely imperative. Um, And really listening to what they're saying, because I, again, you know, the, the workload here is incredibly heavy. Um, Most of our kids are pre-med engineering, um, go down the list, you know, they're, they're pretty heavy duty majors. And so, you know, if you're having a day, I mean, there'll be days somebody will walk in the gym and you just by the look on their face, you'll be like, oh, glad you're here. How about you go home and take a nap? Yeah. <laughs> How about you go, go get a coffee and and just go decompress, right? Yeah. Um, so just knowing the team, knowing their needs, really listening to what they have to say and what they want to bring to the table and what they want the team to look like in any given year um, is, is just really um, super important for us. No, I agree. I agree. And um, what are some pillars that you um, stand on for your team and your program? What are things that you, you know, in regards to like your coaching style and kind of your expectations for your program? So our expectation is that people are going to come in and work hard. And that while every day may not be your best day, you're putting forth your best effort on that particular day. And, you know, I think gymnastics isn't, it's not always about winning and losing. You can have your very best day ever. You can, everybody can have their best score ever, and you can still not win a meet. And I think when you, you only focus on the wins and losses, there's a whole subset of things that you're not focusing on that are, in my opinion, a lot more important, right? Yeah. We did, we hit 24 for 24. We you know, everybody stuck a landing. 
um, three people did new skills and caught them or landed them or whatever it was. So I think focusing on the things that we can actually control that are within yeah. our control is what we really focus on. But I think, you know, honesty is key, um, regardless whether it's, you know, in your personal life, in your gymnastics life, wherever. So I think honesty is probably really high up there for us. Um, communication and then supporting each other, I think yeah. are probably my top three for the team, because I feel like if you're not doing those things, we will not be successful. Yeah. doesn't matter how good of an athlete you are. Yeah. Oh, I agree. I think those are, those are essential and those are life lessons that they're going to take outside of just the sport and that they're going to become better people to, you know, be better, um, participants in society and to influence the places that they're going to, you know, have influence over like their jobs or their families and stuff like that. Right. And where do you guys compete? Do you guys compete in-house or like, do you have an in-house yeah, place so, that you guys compete? Um, up until 2019, we were mostly for the most part competing in our practice gym. Okay. Um, we had a gift, um, from a donor to add a, an extra set of equipment. So we now compete in our, um, in our field house. So we're kind of where our basketball um, team plays and we have a whole set of equipment, all the mats, all the extraneous, whatever we need. We have an amazing crew that sets up for us. Um, and it's a great venue. We just added a brand new scoreboard in there. That's, you know, big, you know, HD, whatever, yeah. You know, <laughs> um, all the interactive things. Um, so yeah, so we're up there permanently now. It used to be just if we were hosting a big meet, we were up there, but now we're up there full time. Nice. And then what conference are you guys in? We're in the GEC, uh, which is a new conference. Uh, it's an independent conference. The all of the schools that are in the GEC used to be in the ECAC. Um, and we felt like that organization wasn't really serving our needs. And so um ECAC hockey is amazing, but ECAC for some other sports isn't quite as extensive. And so we felt that breaking off and making an independent conference would, would serve our needs better. Um, so there are eight schools in the conference, uh, four Ivies and four others. And um, they're all pretty similar in ability, um, which is awesome. It always makes yeah. for a super, super intense competition. So, yeah, yeah, very good. Very good. And what's the environment like at a competition, a Cornell um, gymnastics meet, a home meet? Oh, we have a lot of athletes in the stands. Um, Ithaca is an interesting place to get to. Okay. So um, you're flying to Syracuse and driving or, it, it, yeah, it's it's not, our, our alums are constantly being like, we want to come to Ithaca, but it's such a trek to get there. Um <laughs> So we do have a, a decent fan base. Um, we're not, you know, 20,000 selling out an arena, but um, we have a loyal fan base and and our alums are super supportive and we're on ESPN plus. So, you know, for those who can't get here, they're watching on, on the TV or on their computer. Um, and, and I would say, you know, Cornell has, like I said, about 16,000 undergrads, but about 1200 of them are athletes. So almost 10% of our undergraduate students are varsity athletes and they're all very supportive of each other. So, um, you know, 
we go to other teams events, they come to our events. Um, and then you have a local crowd and depending on who the meet is against, um, we usually will draw, you know, their fans and their families, um, into our, into our stands. That's good. And do you have a relationship with, um, Ithaca, Ithaca, like the college, the other yeah. division three program, because are yep. you guys in the same town? We are, we're about five minute drive apart. <laughs> so Ithaca's a, so kind of going back to Ithaca, Ithaca is an interesting place because you've got two big colleges and Ithaca is a town of about 30,000 residents. But when you add in Cornell and Ithaca college, it more than doubles the population when school's mm -hmm. in session. Um, the county is about 120,000 in the county, but, um, but Ithaca proper, the town itself is only about 30,000. So, um, when school is in session, traffic around here is terrible. <laughs> oh man, I can imagine. And do so, you get, is there a, a lot of split um, fan bases like between Cornell and Ithaca just because of, you know, the proximity of the universities, but also the the size? I think the town is pretty supportive of both universities, um, you know, as far as fans go. So, you know, if you're, if you love basketball, you're probably going to both schools to watch. Um, and, you know, so I don't think it's too terribly split. We're also, because they're division three and we're division one, we see a lot of different schools, you know, who we compete with, although we do compete with them. Um, but just generically in most sports, you're, they're bringing in different schools. So there's not a whole lot of crossover in that respect. Um, but what I will say, uh, we now have six schools in New York with gymnastics, which is amazing. Um, with the addition of LIU a couple of years ago and this year, Utica, we now have six. And so we decided, um, all six of us decided that we're going to have once a year, we're going to do the Empire State Collegiate Championship and yeah. we'll that around. It should be a super fun meet. Um, we're hosting it for the first year this year. Um, Love it. LIU next year and then kind of, you know, rotate around after that. But um, yeah, super exciting. Um, and, you know, with with the NCAA not recognizing division in gymnastics, uh, it doesn't matter who you compete with mm. as long as you, you know, we all follow the same rules. So um, we'll see Ithaca, Cortland, Brockport um, and now Utica. We'll see them all almost every year, at least once. Very cool. Yeah. And I know you mentioned earlier that you guys don't have scholarships, correct? Correct. And but you guys are a division one program. Correct. So how does that work for um especially people who have the assumption that hey, division one programs have scholarships? And how do you guys navigate that through the recruiting process and when you're talking to parents and coaches and I mean we're just very athletes? yeah, we're very upfront from from the beginning. So as soon as a kid reaches out to us, um you know, our initial email back to them is here's what Cornell is all about. You know, some just general information about, you know, we have multiple colleges and you apply to one of those colleges. We also have only need-based financial aid. We don't offer scholarships of any kind, and that includes academic. Um, so, you know, we have had kids who've had scholarship money, but it may be where it was from their church. Or we had a kid um, from California one time and her high school awarded scholarship money to the top male and female athlete at their high school with the best GPA. Okay. Um, so she had a scholarship, but it was not from Cornell. Yeah. Um, 
but we have to have that conversation up front because it is not inexpensive to come to school here. Um, and for a lot of families, it is a big struggle. Um, but we do have them on Cornell's financial aid website. There's a financial aid calculator and we encourage them to go to that website and put in their information and it'll give them an idea. Oh, oh, you may get a $30,000 grant, right? And then that lowers the cost of your tuition and whatnot. And then maybe that's more reasonable for a family to be able to afford. Yeah. But, um, but it is, I mean, I, that's probably one of the top conversations that we have with almost every recruit is the financial aid piece. Yeah. And what is your guys' mascot and war cry? <laughs> oh, you got to love the Ivy Leagues. Um, <sighs> so if it, uh, Cornell is the big red. Okay. Right? Like that is our thing. Yeah. Um, we do have a bear as our spirit mark i don't know what else you want to call it um yeah there's a story behind the bear but we are not the cornell bears um we are the cornell big red um so the story behind the bear is at one point somebody had rescued a baby bear and then they put it on a leash and brought it to a football game and somehow that <laughs> became a mascot clearly the bear got bigger in which case you had to like you know do something with it but um but uh war cry um it's it's officially unofficial yell cornell um okay. and it's been that's been around since the 20s um and and there's nowhere where it says cornell's official war cry or battle cry or whatever you want to call it is this but it's in many different um publications and whatnot and so they've kind of revised that and revamped it and so it's become um a hashtag you know so it's you know hashtag yell cornell cool very yeah. cool yeah well i appreciate having you on the podcast do you have anything you want to leave with the listeners and the viewers um to kind of you know to leave them um with um in regards to cornell university kind of why someone would want to choose cornell and um and why you're excited to still be at Cornell. Well, um, well, first, thank you so much for having me on. This has been great. Um, yeah. I, I think, you know, Cornell definitely has a lot to offer, obviously, academically. Um, but I think it's it's the the family atmosphere that we really focus on. And we feel like every person that comes through our program um, is a part of our family and we treat them as such. And um we just love what we do. And I think not that other coaches don't, but I, I think finding the right program, finding the right feel, going, visiting campuses, seeing what that looks like and what it, what it could be um, right. is really the key to everything. And so taking your time to um, explore all of your options and not, you know, making too hasty of a decision before you've really explored all of your options. So I think that's what I would say. Um, and Cornell is beautiful. So parents love coming here. They love visiting their kids here because there's so much to do, especially if you're yeah. an outdoors person. Um, but yeah, Cornell is awesome. Like really college gymnastics. If this is what you want to do, do your homework, take some visits and then see which one feels like it's home for you. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you again, everybody, for tuning in to another episode of Heated Conversations. And thank you, Melanie, for joining the podcast and talking about Cornell.
Um, and also answering some questions that some people may have had, especially in regards to Ivy Leagues and how it works on a financial piece, but also reiterating the process of going to a campus and really getting the full experience of being there and know that it's for you. And it's not always just about what you hear, you know, it's doing your initial research, but also going there and having that experience for yourself. Um, I hope you got a lot of insightful information. Tune into the next one. Remember to subscribe, to like, share, and comment. See you guys on the next one.